So any uh, Man vs. Wild fans out there, Bear Grylls, right? Okay, some, so. Yeah, I was watching a little bit about the... Uh, little bit of man versus wild this week and and this week he was trying to get out of this costa rican jungle can i can i I just want to say the guy is like awesome like he goes into this cave and builds this torch out of resinous wood and just like lights it with a flint and then he goes in there to kill a rodent or something and he can't get that so he finds this hideous cross between a spider and a scorpion like as big as his hand and he gets it with a rock and then he eats it and the legs are sticking out of his mouth i think i would probably just die in the jungle but Bear Grylls is awesome. So anyway, he's at one point he's in like the the jungle floor and he's trying to head east because that's where the 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 water is where he can find help. And he can't figure out which way is east. So he sees a hill and he shimmies like total Tarzan like up this vine on a limestone cliff face and he gets up to the top and he's able to tell by the trade winds or something which way is east. He's just rad. But anyway, he needed to get high to get on a uh, on a hilltop to get perspective. Uh, so we could know which direction he was going. Well, this evening, we're continuing on in our exploration of the Beatitudes. There are eight Beatitudes, and we're on number six this evening. It is, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. We are right in the middle of a teaching that is full of life and incredibly good news. But it's also important to remember as we're looking at this one verse in Matthew's gospel that this one verse is part of a much bigger whole. So let's get our bearings, climb up on a mountaintop for a minute so we can get some perspective so we can interpret this text a little bit better. So part of understanding uh, what Jesus is trying to get at is going to take us getting kind of in the sandals of his original hearers. And as I've tried to remind us week after week, the common Jewish person in Palestine during Jesus' day was waiting, hungry for change. For centuries, Persians and then Greeks and then Romans had occupied their land and used it as a trade route to either Egypt or for shipping routes to the Mediterranean Sea. Not only were the Israelites politically oppressed, but they saw their political oppression as a symptom or a result of God's presence actually leaving them. So deep within Israel's history was this vision of walking with God, of being in fellowship with God, of God's presence with them. And in some of the prophetic writings, like hundreds of years before Jesus became human and dwelt among us, God promised to come one day to set things right, to establish his reign and his rule. So, people in Jesus' day are waiting. They're hoping. And then there's this wild man wearing an outfit of camel's hair and eating, eating bugs who's not Bear grills, but he's still eating bugs anyway, and hanging out in the desert, and his name is John. And he's, he's baptizing people, and he's calling them to repentance. Crowds see him. He's announcing the reign of God. And what's crazy is, a lot of Jewish people were coming to this crazy guy, John, and being baptized by him, which is extremely humiliating, because only Gentiles really got baptized. It was a way of saying, I died in my pagan way of life, and I'm entering into this new way of life of following God. So for a Jewish person to get baptized by crazy bug-eating John meant that whatever they were doing wasn't really following God before. 
This John the Baptizer uh, was describing his own ministry by quoting Isaiah 40. And Isaiah 40 is talking about the day when not the Messiah would come to earth, but when God himself would dwell with his people. And then Jesus comes on the scene and John points to Jesus and says that Jesus is the fulfillment of that prophecy that Jesus is embodying God's presence on earth. And Jesus begins to declare this good news that, that God's kingdom is at hand, that is breaking into our world, and that people should repent, that, that they should start living as if God were God and not us being God or someone else being God. Jesus starts gathering students and healing and casting out demons. And think about that. How would you respond if you were there and Jesus is saying these things and doing these things in the midst of a nation who is hoping for God to come? Well, we know how hundreds of people initially responded. They wanted to be around Jesus, to check him out, to see if he was for real. And as the crowd formed around him, Jesus went up on a mountain to teach his students He's teaching those who had already committed to follow him. And then behind them, maybe, or interspersed, were, were these crowds of gawkers who were kind of not committed to Jesus yet, but they wanted to kind of check out what he was about. And Jesus began to teach his students, or his disciples, about this new kind of life that's available in the kingdom of heaven. Now, before getting into the meat of what we call his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives eight beatitudes or blessings. He was saying things like, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And, and he said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And blessed are the humble, for they shall actually inherit the earth, the new creation when it comes in full. Jesus was not giving people barriers that they had to cross. He was not saying, if you want the kingdom to come, you've got to try and figure out how to be like these, these eight things. He was not saying that. What Jesus was saying, and this is key to understanding these Beatitudes, what Jesus is saying is that the kingdom is breaking in into this world, whether you like it or not. Whether you acknowledge it or not, that's actually what's happening. Whether you act this way or you act that way. And when someone repents and trusts in Jesus and begins to live in the reality of this new kingdom, these are the qualities that God develops in us. These are the eight traits that a kingdom person is going to exhibit. And these eight traits are the end of what you will be. So with my help, this is Jesus, with Jesus' help, why don't we start trying to live that way now? That's basically what he's saying. This new kingdom is a reality. Here are the eight traits that a kingdom person is going to exhibit. And when you start to trust in me, you're going to start living this way. Why not try it now? For us, the Beatitudes might kind of seem like this idealism or an ethical teaching or some kind of good advice. But if we climb off the jungle floor to our vantage point, eating spiders with bare grills, we realize they are not just ideals. The Beatitudes are very good news. Now, hundreds of years before Jesus became human and dwelt among us, God spoke to the prophet Isaiah. And I, 
Isaiah recorded God's promises to deliver Israel and the world. In fact, there are 17 separate passages in Isaiah talking about the good news or gospel of God's deliverance. These prophecies talk about things like, guess what? Comforting mourners. They talk about the humble inheriting the new creation, the earth. They talk about righteousness and justice prevailing. Sounds a lot like the Beatitudes, right? They talk about God's desire for mercy. And nine of the 17 passages, God promises his very presence to be with us. Now, why is God's presence such a big deal? And what does it have to do with tonight's beatitude? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Let's take that question backwards. What does it mean to see God? What does it mean to see God? On the surface, it sounds like a silly question. What does it mean to see this music stand? What does it mean to see me? What does it mean for me to see you? In our culture, we usually speak of seeing someone or something as a function of our eyes, interpreting light, bouncing off something, upside-down image being going through a lens, and then through our optic nerve, right? And then our brain interpreting that. We talk like that because we're a scientific culture. We're a technological culture, right? If I see something, I see it. It's just the way it is. Interpretation of signals. But if you've ever stood underneath the Sistine Chapel ceiling, you realize you don't see that ceiling. It sees you. If you've ever experienced that ceiling, I know that my eyes are just interpreting a signal. There's rods and cones and other nonsense. But that seems like such an insignificant way to describe what's going on. Or it's like being in love. Other people may see the person you're in love with. Now, don't all look at Corey right now, but if you've ever seen Corey, you see her. But you don't know how I get to see her. You don't know the depth of her graciousness, of her patience, of her character, some of the secret things that someone who is in love with her gets to see. It's a different kind of seeing. It's a seeing that is actually a knowing, that is actually an experience. And when we start talking about seeing as knowing, we're much closer to the Hebrew idea of the word. Many scholars, like I said earlier, uh, may have been, uh, suggest that Jesus may have been drawing on Psalm 24 as one of the backdrops for the sixth beatitude. We read it earlier as part of our call to worship. Here are verses 3 and 4. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord, and who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart. Well, what is this metaphorical hill of the Lord that we're talking about ascending? It's none other than God's presence. God's presence. And why is that good news? Because the prophet Ezekiel tells the story of Israel's idolatry and unfaithfulness, of their mistreatment of their own poor, of their own widows, of their own fatherless. And in response to this rebellion, in the prophet Ezekiel, God withdraws his presence from the people. He withdraws his presence from the temple. 
for hundreds of years. People were waiting, waiting, longing for God's presence to return. So Jesus has this crowd up on a mountaintop. And remember, Matthew's writing after all this stuff has happened. Matthew's writing this after Jesus is already resurrected. Jesus' original hearers, when they're up on the mountain with Jesus, they don't know that they're looking at the living God. But we get that perspective. So how cool is it? Jesus, all these people are longing for God's presence to return after it had been pulled away hundreds of years earlier. There they are in his presence on this mountaintop. And Jesus is talking about seeing God. Jesus says that the pure in heart will experience him, will know him. And aren't we all, each of us, really longing deep down to see God, to know him? The one who thought you up, the one who breathes life into you. Jesus says the pure in heart will see him, will know him. The pure in heart will know his character and will long for his name to be hallowed or made famous. Will long for his kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, in our hearts as it is in heaven, in our families as it is in heaven, in our workplaces as it is in heaven. Jesus says the pure in heart shall see God. Well, when is that going to happen? And of course, you know what I'm going to say. Yes, it happens now, and yes, it happens in the future. It's the tension of the now and not yet, right? So on the one hand, the promise uh, that the pure in heart will see God is a promise to inherit the kingdom of God. It's a future thing. I say that because one of the vivid pictures we have of this new kingdom is from the book of Revelation. It talks about the garden city coming down to earth, not us going somewhere else. The, the kingdom coming and taking up residence, and God's presence being so tangible that there's no longer need for the sunshine anymore that will be in His presence. We will know Him as He is. That's really good news. But the promise of God's presence is also a gift Jesus offers the pure in heart now. Remember that seeing God is not necessarily seeing God like I see you. There's so much mystery surrounding what shape is God? What does he actually look like? What kind of being is he? In fact, mostly throughout scripture what we learn is that if you really see God face to face, you're probably going to die or something. Like nobody actually gets to see him as he really is. And Moses got to see his, his behind, I think, one time in a rock cleft. And Jacob kind of was wrestling this angelic kind of figure that God may or may not have been and you know there's there's different kind of Isaiah seems to see a glimpse of this heavenly host and he falls on his face says I'll be I'm unclean I'm not worthy to see this so I'm not so sure how we would do seeing God face to face but the promise of God's presence now is is something that um, that he offers us through the gift of the Holy Spirit for one the Spirit guides us, reminds you and I of our adoption in God's family. The Spirit equips us to participate in the work of the kingdom here on earth. In John 14, Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And then in, 15, in John 15, 15, Jesus says, no longer do I call you servants, but I call you friends. The servant doesn't know what the master is doing, but I've called you friends for all that I have heard from my Father I've made known to you. 
right? And yet again, in 1 Corinthians 2.16, St. Paul writes, Isaiah's question is, is there anyone around who knows God's spirit? Anyone who knows what God is doing? Christ knows, and we have Christ's spirit. So, to see God is to know God, to know the beauty of his character, the magnificence of his power, his vision, his vision for the world. To see God is to see the world more as God sees it, to see one another as God sees them. It's to, it's to take on God's eyes for each other. And that, that can only make us more compassionate for one another. To then act upon the world as God would have us act, with humility, with hope, with hunger and thirst for what is right and just, with mercy and with pure hearts. So if the pure in heart see God, then what does it mean to be pure in heart? Well, first of all, to understand heart, I think we have to confess that we've been deeply influenced by Greek thinking particularly in the way that the Greeks compartmentalize ourselves of mind and spirit and body, and they, they hold all these things as separate. In Greek thinking, and often in Western Christianity, we tend to think of inside and outside, thoughts and actions, interior life and exterior life as separate entities. Many have, have been taught that if we insulate ourselves from the world or don't do bad things, we're right on track with God. Well, Jesus was not a Greek thinker. He was a Hebrew thinker. And the sources for his imagery and his language and his thought are from the scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures. Jesus quotes mostly from the prophet Isaiah and the Psalms. And that's why in just a few more verses in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he focuses so much on the heart. Sure, you don't murder but are you killing one another with your anger and grudges? Sure, you don't commit adultery, but are you committing adultery in your heart through lust? So when Jesus is talking about purity of heart, he's, he's not just talking about what we don't do, but he's talking about, what, about the very core of who we are. Purity of heart is a single-minded focus on God's way of living. It doesn't mean we should all be hermits and withdraw uh, from society. In fact, far from it. God's will is that we would be his image bearers in the world, that we would know him. And to know him is to love him. And to love him is to love what he loves. And that leads to lives that will be right at home in the kingdom of heaven. Listen to Psalm 15, which is very close to Psalm 20, 24. O Lord... Who may abide in your tent? Another way of saying, who may be in your presence? Who may dwell on your holy hill? The person who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart and does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. He does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. I want you to notice something about that list of the, the person who could be in God's presence. 
Notice something about that list of the person who has the pure heart. It has nothing to do with your technique in prayer. It has nothing to do with how often you go to church. It has nothing to do with the words that you say, with saying all the right Christian lingo. What this passage is saying about the pure in heart is that they treat one another with love and respect and dignity. They take care of the weak. This is, this is awesome. This is not describing the squeaky clean person. In fact, Jesus was never mistaken for a squeaky clean person. He was always getting in trouble for hanging out with the wrong crowd. But Jesus had a quality about him. Everyone felt safe around him. Unless you were against him, that'd be a bad thing. To be in pure in heart then is to know God's love for us and love for others and to treat them accordingly. It sounds difficult. It is. It's very difficult. Um, But guess what? There's really good news. Remember how in Ezekiel's prophecy, God takes his presence away. I mentioned that earlier. Well, later on in Ezekiel's book, God shares some exciting news that Keith actually read. Here it is. Then I will sprinkle you clean with water, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my very spirit within you and cause you to walk with, in my statutes, and you'll be careful to observe my ordinances. God promised to give us a heavenly heart transplant. He knows that we can't just will ourselves to have pure hearts. And so what he does is he remedies that. He says, trust in me and I give you this new heart. Jesus came on the scene and was declaring the good news of God's coming kingdom. Jesus was describing what happens in you and I when we begin to repent and order our lives in obedience and trust in Jesus. He said people would first be confronted with their poverty of spirit. But then these people would inherit the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said the person submitted to him would be comforted in their mourning. He said the humble would actually inherit the earth. And those who follow him would not only have a hunger and thirst for righteousness, but they would be satisfied. And that the followers of Jesus would develop hearts of mercy because they would have new hearts, hearts of flesh, hearts set on Jesus and his good agenda for the world. If your heart feels fragmented this evening, if it feels diluted or focused on the wrong things, there's good news. Jesus says, come and follow me. Trust in me to forgive you. Learn to do what I say and you will develop these qualities. I will give you a pure heart. Maybe that's your starting point this evening. Or maybe for those of us who have already made a commitment to follow Jesus and still feel fragmented, 
This word reminds us that Jesus has given us his spirit, his very presence. He's defeated sin and death. And maybe during this season of Lent, during the season of giving up something good to gain something better, we might ask Jesus to receive this purity of heart afresh. I know that's my prayer. Would you join with me?